Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Americano podcast, a special series of discussions about the biggest political event of this year, the 2016 US presidential election. My name's Freddie Gray and I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. Today I'm joined down the line by J. Arthur Bloom, who is managing editor of Front Porch Republic and founder of The Mitrailleuse, which is a newsletter. And we're going to be talking about Trump, Twitter and the age of the political unreal. Arthur, I think it's fair to say that uh, the Trump presidency... Um, away from Twitter has been surprisingly sane, albeit with uh, pretty Trumpist touches. But then there's been this carrying on of Donald Trump's tweeting, which is fairly mad and generates a lot of excitement, outrage and hostility. Is that a fair assessment of, of what's been happening with Trump and his Twitter account? Yeah, absolutely. There's no question that his, uh, the, his, the statements he makes there are definitely uh, wilder, more unhinged. He's definitely trying to get a rise out of people. The, the sort of thing that uh, people have started to speculate about, though, is whether or not he's using his Twitter account to sort of screen things he'd rather not be talking about. Like about a week ago, um, it was the Hamilton um, fiasco that Mike Pence, his vice presidential um, nominee, was uh, uh, yelled at during Hamilton. And then Trump sent out a tweet saying, uh, you know, that was very rude uh, and all this. And then there was the, so the speculation about that is that he was weighing in on this controversy to avoid talking about or, or uh, deflect attention from the settlement in the Trump University case where he actually paid out several million dollars. Yes, and there have been, there've been other examples too of, of him saying something outrageous, uh, you know, about the one Brits were very interested in was, was him suggesting Farage should be our ambassador. And that generates a lot of sort of media hype and it, it provides a sort of cover, if you like. Is that the idea? To, to actually get away with, with things that he doesn't want people to talk about. Yeah, it could be that or it could be that he's just trying to keep his name in the news or, you know, it could be that there's no uh, that there's no logic to it at all. Though, you know, at this point, I think uh, many people have uh, have lost badly, assuming that he's stupid and, and uh, not uh, in control of what he's doing. So I think, you know, fair to assume it's deliberate at this point. And there seems to be a growing liberal consensus. It's slowly dawning on on left liberals in the media that perhaps getting outraged by Trump's tweets is not a smart idea. I've seen the sort of New Republic have done a piece on outrage porn and why we shouldn't indulge in it. Um, Do you get the impression that, that, that the people who sort of spend most of their time on the Internet being horrified by Trump are starting to realize that maybe they're being conned or played by Trump's Twitter account? Not at all. The incentives aren't there. The incentives are there to be constantly outraged all the time. Uh, that's the way to accumulate followers. That's the that's the way to get clicks on articles. I don't see those incentives changing or, or the sort of, uh, you know, a collective act of self-discipline on behalf of media and Twitter users. I just I don't see that ever happening. Really? You, do, you don't think people will just get bored and eventually will, you'll stop getting followers if you get outraged by Trump? No, I, I don't think that's how it happens. The, uh, you know, the, the one that most recently caused the controversy was him saying there should be some sort of penalty for flag burning. Yeah. And, and the fact is, for, first of all, he, Trump doesn't, you know, when, he's, when he becomes president, he won't be proposing laws. That's Congress's job. Yeah. And in any case, it's clearly unconstitutional. Uh, and it, it would never, you know, st- stand up as a law. So it, it's sort of a it's a non-issue. And yet, uh, that's become the subject of, you know, a whole new round of fear mongering about the fascist state that Trump is going to inaugurate. More broadly, I suppose we're entering to an odd phase of sort of unreality in politics in which it doesn't really matter whether Trump means what he says um, on Twitter because it may just be a game. And there's also been the whole fake news story and uh, Pizzagate, which you could p- perhaps tell us a little bit about. D- does it feel like the, the, the media now is in an unreal place? 
Yeah. Um, so fake news could be it could come from a lot of different places. Fake news has sort of been the um, one of the things that the mainstream media has gone to to sort of look for an explanation as to why uh, Trump was winning. And, and if you spend a lot of time on Facebook, particularly in conservative circles, you'll see the sort of websites they're talking about, like Daily Sheeple. Uh, you know, every now and again, you'll see a headline about the Illuminati or, or whatever. And uh, it, it, the, the, the claim is that they're doing something. The uh, outrage and hysteria and uh, of these fake news stories had an effect on the election. And uh, th that's sort of being used as uh, against social networks, particularly Twitter and Facebook, uh, to argue for censoring them or having some sort of editorial process to weed out the fake from the real news. The problem with that is, uh, you know, even the mainstream media sometimes gets the story wrong. Like the New York Times had a story. Um, it was all about uh, a rise in hate crimes after Trump's election. Mm -hmm. And they were using hate crime data from 2015. Now, by any reasonable estimation, that's a fake story. Yeah. But it's in the New York Times. So who decides whether or not this is fake? Fake. And then, you know, if you're going to install, I think that the plan would be if, if they were able to kind of get an editorial process into Facebook is they'd hire some sort of uh, prestige legis legacy um, media editor that's, you know, a, a sort of maybe Nick Kristoff type to be the executive editor of Facebook. Um, the problem is how many of these mainstream editors saw through the Rolling Stone rape hoax story. The, the fact is not many, and they get they get it wrong too. I, I just sorry, Arthur, Arthur. Could you could you remind us of the the details of the Rolling Stone fake rape story? Well, last year uh, it was a big cover story in the Rolling Stone about um, a woman being gang raped at a, a fraternity at UVA, and the entire story over the following couple of weeks just dissipated. It turned out that the um, that the alleged victim was um, you know almost catfishing. Um, one of her, um, a guy that she was romantically interested in. The whole story fell apart, and in a court just recently, Rolling Stone was found guilty, or particularly the, the journalist who wrote the story, was found guilty of libel with malice. And this is a story that was uh, praised widely across the journalistic spectrum, from up and down, uh, from the New York Times to the Washington Post and all of that. Um, and the story just turned out to not be true. There, there was no truth in it at all. The rape never happened. Um, and yet it, it already had, it, um, even before the story was debunked, a huge impact on how we were talking about campus sexual assault. Um, so, you know, the whole line between fake and real news, it's not as simple as who's writing it or the institution that's publishing it. A lot of people seem to call this post-truth politics or post-truth media. Do you think that's a fair description of it? I guess, what, why are these news organizations so popular? Why was InfoWars, why did Trump thank InfoWars or, or Alex Jones after, uh, after the election? Clearly, they are very powerful. Alex Jones is one of the uh, probably biggest YouTube channels out there. Mm. And part of that has to do with the, just the fact that it's exciting. If, if, uh, you know, if you're told that FEMA's in your water and, you know, you need to start mobilizing for, uh, you know, the, the coming American military dictatorship, uh, you know, that, that's sort of exciting. It's fun to read. I, I like watching Alex Jones. No, no question. Yeah. Uh, but also a big part of it is that I think the media really has discredited itself with its, you know, constant uh, anti-Trump lines like that story about the rise in hate crimes. Now, nobody who looks at that story um, seriously, that, that story wouldn't get past an ombudsman uh, in a in a fair media environment. Yeah. But uh, but it seems to have. And the idea that all of these legacy media organizations have lined up behind Trump is driving 
people to seek alternative sources of information, some of which are not entirely credible. Yeah. Is there an extent to which the truth just doesn't matter anymore? Yeah, we were talking about Pizzagate earlier. And, and so uh, to kind of this is a really good example of this. Uh, so Pizzagate, to, to give you sort of uh, the 10,000 foot view, uh, basically it's an Internet conspiracy theory that there's a group of Clinton loyalists running a, a child sex trafficking ring out of a pizza restaurant in northwest Washington. And uh, they've they've gone through Instagram accounts and all this. Uh, they've gone through Instagram accounts. They've looked at the logos of uh, that business and the ones next to it uh, to find, you know, coded pedophile language. They've looked at the emails of John Podesta and where he seemed – there really are some strange emails they've dug up. Like John Podesta talks about having left behind a pizza-related map on a handkerchief, it, basically things that sound like they're speaking in coded language. Now, none of this is substantiated, but in some ways it, it sort of – it doesn't really matter. The, the story here is that Tony Podesta is really into gross art, and, and the, um, the, the owner of the pizza restaurant, uh, James Alafantis, who is the uh, former boyfriend, or, or uh, I've seen some stories that, that say he's his current partner too, um, is – so there's, there's all this art inside his restaurant, um, some of which is you know not the sort of thing you'd want to be in a restaurant that has events for children. And there are pictures on his Instagram of him being yeah, – of him covered in blood, um, these sort of like really weird things, and, and you can extrapolate all – all sorts of uh, conclusions out of that, most of which are probably not true. But the story that, uh, you know, our elite seems to have a completely different set of values uh, than, than the majority of the country, I think, is sort of the more important story, maybe. Yes. Yeah. So, so perhaps sort of fake news can attach itself to a truth that people feel about politicians. And it doesn't matter whether the actual story is true. It just taps into a sense they have that their politicians are bad people. I think that's a very good way of putting it. Well, it's uh, very mad times. Do you, do you feel that you're going mad in this in this in the in the Trump era? Well, I've decamped to the leafy Lawrence, Kansas, to um, study extremists. So um, I'm getting deep into the crazies. <laughs>